And if you are tuning in for the first time, I want to welcome you to Daring Dialogues, Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday. We're looking at White Too Long by Robert P. Jones, and we're going to have a conversation about this legacy of white supremacy in American Christianity. Oftentimes I hear people talk about Christian nationalism, but I don't hear people talking too much or not enough about Christian identity and dominionism. Um, I encourage um, thinking beyond the title of Christian nationalism, and I encourage you to do a deeper dive into the topic of Christian identity. Christian identity is something that lots of white supremacists hide behind. They would not necessarily see themselves as um, a Christian nationalist or a white nationalist. Um, But I'll I'll probably give you the name of one of the more prominently known Christian identitarians, and that is Richard Spencer. Now, a lot of people remember him from right after the, um, the Charlottesville incident. And he was going around and he was, you know, in his suit and his white shirt. And he was more of a white collar, uh, white supremacist. But when he was actually interviewed, they asked him uh, what he was. And he said, I'm an identitarian. And I knew right then exactly what he was talking about. But it seems as though it kind of like missed people's notice. So when I started looking at um, Christian identity, it led me to the topic of dominionism. And dominionism um, ties into what some people call the seven mountains doctrine. That too is tied to dominionism. And when you start digging into dominionism, then you start realizing um, how many charismatic white Christians are tied to white supremacy through the aspect of dominionism. Um, The notions that they're going to be in heaven and that people of color are going to be serving them. That is actually a part of their doctrinal belief. Um, So they don't mind you going to heaven (laughs) as long as you are serving them in heaven. So you you have to, and, and again, I encourage a deeper dive into these particular topics, but right now we're gonna go back to Robert P. Jones's book, White Too Long. And this is the cover for anybody who is interested in it. Okay. And he is talking about, we, I believe we ended on, let's see, understanding white supremacy's presence beyond Southern evangelicalism. And we started digging into the topic of restrictive covenants and how some of the people pushing policies and some of the people pushing these kinds of laws, um, where your regular everyday, you know, sit in the pew every Sunday, white Christian. And the point that he's making is that it did not necessarily take someone who was highly educated or it didn't necessarily take somebody who was in power in a particular um, church, right? It didn't, he's saying it didn't take a pastor to convince people to act in these ways or act in ways against equality, that it was literally your regular everyday Christian that was sort of taking up these stances based on what they saw the attitude in their leaders leading them into. So we're going to hop back into this 
conversation about restrictive covenants and then we're going to move on from there and we're going to cover a um the uh, roman catholic church's complicity we're going to cover um the national black catholic clergy caucus that happened in 1968 and um We're going to go from there and then we'll conclude this chapter. And then after I'm done reading, I will open it up for discussion. Today, the modest Shelley House has been designated a National Historic Landmark. Few law students are taught that the restrictive covenants in the neighborhood had been organized by the Marcus Avenue Improvement Association, which was a white homeowners association that was sponsored by the Cote Brillante Presbyterian Church. Kramer's legal attempt to evict the Shelleys was funded from the church's coffers. In action officially approved by the congregation's trustees, Wagoner Place Methodist Episcopal Church South, another nearby mainline Protestant church, was also a signatory of the restrictive covenant. Six years earlier, its pastor had defended it in court in a case the association brought to prevent a local distinguished black attorney from purchasing a home in the neighborhood. And few took notice of the actions of the white church members following the court decision that opened their neighborhood to African Americans. In less than a decade after the Shelleys moved in, most of the white church members had moved out of the neighborhood and abandoned the church. The white congregation held its last communion service on May 27, 1956. Perhaps the most glaring example of the chasm between national denominational positions and local sentiment among white mainline Protestants occurred in 1963. Six years after Reverend King praised the National Council of Churches for its leadership on civil rights, and in the same year that the Christian Century published his letter from Birmingham Jail, Atlanta's Lovett School, affiliated with the New York-based Episcopal Church, notified Reverend and Mrs. King that their six-year-old son, Martin Luther King III, was being denied admission on the basis of his race. For their part, white Catholics also resisted sometimes violently influxes of African Americans into their own ethnic neighborhoods in the industrial cities of the Midwest and Northeast. The widespread opposition to racial equality by the U.S. Catholic Church led W.E.B. Dubois to single it out for particular criticism. In a 1925 letter to Reverend Joseph B. Glenn, a priest in charge of St. Joseph's Mission in Richmond, Virginia, a parish established in 1884 specifically for black Catholics, Dubois wrote a stinging indictment of the church's relationship to African Americans. In his letter, he says, the Catholic church in America stands for color separation and discrimination to a degree equaled by no other church in America. And that is saying a great deal. The white parochial schools, even in the North, exclude colored children. The Catholic high schools will not admit them. The Catholic University at Washington invites them elsewhere and scarcely a Catholic seminary in the country will train a Negro priest. This is not a case of blaming the Catholic Church for not doing all it might. It is blaming it for being absolutely and fundamentally wrong today and in the United States on the basic demands of human brotherhood across the color line. In other words, nobody in America 
really should be getting a pass. <laughs> I know there's a lot of attention right now on the evangelicals, but if we're going to be actually honest about the levels of racism and bias and prejudice that has rolled through forms of Christianity in this country, then let's not skip over people who historically also have issues. They're also problematic as well. Catholic clergy, churches, and laity were also active in policing neighborhood boundaries in major cities across the country. When the United States entered World War II in 1941, the government commissioned a new bomber plant in Willow Run, a suburban area of Detroit. The Federal Works Agency was put in charge of building temporary housing for workers, including a segregated housing project for African Americans designated as the Sojourner Truth Housing Project. How do you slap Sojourner Truth's name on something she would have been against? (laughs) After considerable controversy following the objections of white elected officials, which resulted in the firing of the FWA director who had proposed the project, it was nonetheless eventually green-lighted. When blacks began to move in, whites in the nearby neighborhoods rioted. The clash between whites and their new African-American neighbors resulted in more than 100 arrests and 38 hospitalizations, almost all of which were among African-Americans. The riot made national news. A less acknowledged fact was that this violent white resistance was organized again by a homeowners association that was headquartered in a local church, the St. Louis the King Catholic Church. When the association appealed to the Federal Housing Administration to cancel the project, their spokesperson was the church's priest, Reverend Constantine Zink, who gave the following testimony. Quote, construction of a low-cost housing project in the vicinity for the colored people would mean utter ruin for many who have mortgaged their homes to the FHA, and not only that, but it would jeopardize the safety of many of our white girls. His closing remarks also contained a thinly veiled warning about how far his own church members and fellow white community members were willing to go to resist the housing project. It is the sentiment of all people residing within the vicinity to object against this project in order to stop race riots in the future but yet they rioted themselves. In New York, the response of the Roman Catholic Church in many instances was to facilitate the flight from historically Irish and Italian inner city neighborhoods out to the suburbs where new churches and schools were built. While the bishops often did not immediately close the original parish churches and schools not populated by black Catholics, they did shift resources away from them to the new white parishes. Reflecting on his personal experience with these dynamics, in 1970, Father Lawrence Lucas, a black Catholic priest, described how these actions left many black Catholics angry and hurt, feeling forsaken by a white Jesus and a white church. He says, when blacks appeared on the scene, the white Christ, after fighting like H-E double hockey sticks to keep them out, fled and abandoned their buildings to the N-words as one step better than blowing them up. In the cities, the abandoned edifices of this white Jesus' love are allowed to die a slow death from lack of upkeep and support. 
When the white Jesus ran away from the invading inwards, he did not put his buildings, churches, schools, hospitals in his pocket or put a match to them. No, he was in such a hurry that he just left them behind and appointed some heroic white lieutenants to keep them from utterly destroying his investments while feigning a response to their needs. The first meeting of the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus in 1968 opened with a sharply worded statement. It read, The Catholic Church in the United States is primarily a white racist institution, has addressed itself primarily to white society, and is definitely a part of that society. On January 8, 1969, a group of 20 mostly white Catholic priests similarly called out the Archdiocese of Newark, New Jersey, for neglecting the needs of more than half a million African Americans in the Archdiocese inner city. They issued a public statement covered in the New York Times that read in part, quote, for a decade, the drama and urgency of the desperate need of the inner city has been ignored by the official church in Newark. The official church is apathetic. It is racist. Less than four years later, with none of the initial demands addressed by the archdiocese, seven of the 20 priests who filed the original complaint had left the ministry, including the two leading spokesmen and the only black priests in the archdiocese. Four of the original priests who remained on their posts all in their 30s lodged another complaint in 1972. Reverend Michael Linder reiterated the charge in an interview with the New York Times. They were very much racist and they still are. If you define racism as not allowing black and Spanish speaking people to project themselves into leadership positions in the archdiocese. Again, let me say that this same situation is happening across America, not only in the Catholic church, but also in other denominations. There is a distinct lack of diversity across this country in predominantly white Christian spaces. So to me, it doesn't matter what denomination you are, the results are the same. And when you ask about it, because I have several times, anytime I see it, I ask, why is it that your staff is not reflective of the diversity that you're trying to draw into your ministry? Well, well, um, um, I hadn't really thought about that. Okay, I'm going to need you to go back and think about it again. In The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, another book which I do have, Richard Rothstein summarizes how prevalent white Christian support for enforcing neighborhood segregation was. Quote, Church involvement and leadership were commonplace in property owners associations that were organized to maintain neighborhood segregation. In North Philadelphia in 1942, a priest spearheaded a campaign to prevent African Americans from living in the neighborhood. The same year, a priest in a Polish American parish in Buffalo, New York, directed the campaign to deny public housing for African American war workers stalling the project for two years. Just south of the city, 600 units in a federally managed project for whites were vacant, while African-American war workers could not find adequate housing. We could easily continue to pile up examples, but a pattern is clear. 
White Christians and their institutions, especially at the local level, were not just passively complicit but with, but also broadly and actively resistant to black Americans' claims of equality. This massive religious resistance was happening even as white Protestant mainline denominational offices and the American Catholic bishops were issuing statements calling for their constituents to support aspects of the civil rights movement. In the same 1957 speech in which Reverend King had praised the NCC for its consistency as a national body, he also had this to say, quote, All of these things are marvelous and deserve our highest praise, but we must admit that these courageous stands from the churches are still far too few. The sublime statements of the major denominations on the question of human relations move all too slowly, and local churches into actual practice. All too many ministers are still silent while evil rages. Have you ever heard that put on a plaque? Has that been used as a black history quote? All too many ministers are still silent while evil rages. The U.S. Catholic bishops followed up their initial 1958 statement a decade later with a 1968 statement titled The National Race Crisis, which noted, Now, 10 years later, it is evident that we did not do enough. We have much more to do. How many times are we going to hear that phrase, we have much more to do? 1968, 1978, 1988, 1998, 2008, 2018. Similar refrains. It became clear that we failed to change the attitudes of many believers. Yet another decade later in 1979, the bishops issued a statement titled Brothers and Sisters to Us, which declared, racism is an evil that endures in our society and in our church. Stop there. Racism would not have half the chance to endure in our society if it was not enduring in churches. One more time. One more time. Say it one more time. Somebody's going to catch that. Racism would not stand the chance that it does to endure in our societies if it was not on full blast in churches. Despite apparent advances and even significant changes in the last two decades, the reality of racism remains. The statement went on to conclude that too often what has happened has only been a covering over, not a fundamental change. On the 10th anniversary of Brothers and Sisters to Us in 1989, the Bishop's Committee on Black Catholics conducted a survey of the impact of the statement and issued a sharply worded conclusion. The promulgation of the pastoral on racism was soon forgotten by all but a few. A survey revealed a pathetic, anemic response around the country. The pastoral on racism had made little or no impact on the majority of Catholics in the United States. At the 25th anniversary of the statement in, 20, in 2004, the bishops again conducted a survey to assess its impact. They found that only 18% of U.S. bishops had issued statements condemning racism as a sin. And when you have a lack of condemnation of racism as a sin, 
When you keep pushing it to the side and saying that's not really part of the gospel, you get what happened January 6th. where the people who stormed the Capitol were repeatedly calling the black police officer the N-word and chanting it. Yeah, that happened. Brian Massengale, a priest and author of Racial Justice in the Catholic Church, notes that, quote, most of these statements were written by only a handful of bishops and that few moved beyond personal attitude to deal with systemic racism. Most tellingly, the study found that nearly two-thirds of Catholics reported that they had not heard a single sermon on racism or racial justice over the entire three-year cycle of the lectionary. In other words, even while working through the entire text of the Bible over that period, the majority of priests did not find a single occasion to preach on racial justice issues. To be sure, there are important questions about the ultimate resolve of the leadership of the National Council of Churches, the mainline Protestant denominations, and the U.S. Catholic hierarchy to connect their declarations with discipleship at the local church level. But this disconnect between official positions of the church and the attitude of their flocks is also testimony to the entrenched power of white supremacy in American Christianity, built up over centuries. As noted in chapter one of this book, this massive white Christian resistance was happening, not just in the bad, bad South, but in the good, good North. While white evangelicals were providing Christian legitimization of the Confederate lost cause, white mainline Protestants in the pews were protecting their long claimed title to the throne of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant dominance. For their part, Catholics seized the moment to transform the terms of the conflict. Amidst the turmoil, they ceased to perceive the fight as one between Irish and Black or Italian and Black ethnic groups. Rather, the flight out of their old parishes in the wake of Black encroachment was the critical moment when the Irish and the Italian and other European Catholics who each had long thought of themselves as an immigrant group with a distinct ethnic heritage from a specific country of origin discovered that they could all be white. So it moved away from being ethnic ethnicities against each other to joining forces under Jesus Kenny Loggins Christ and taking on that one form, crystallizing it into whiteness. Conclusion. A moment of reckoning is upon us and it's time, as the writer says, that white Christians do better to see what is plainly in front of them and to wrestle with the unsettling implications What if the racist views of historical titans of the faith infected the entire theological project contemporary white Christians have inherited from top to to bottom? We're actually saying what if and not it did. (laughs) 
If white supremacy was an unquestionable cultural assumption in America, what does it mean that Christian doctrines by necessity had to develop in ways that were compatible with this worldview? What if, for example, Christian conceptions of marriage and family, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, or even the concept of having a personal relationship with Jesus developed as they did because they were useful tools for reinforcing white dominance. Is it possible that the white supremacy heresy is so integrated into the white Christian DNA that it eludes even sincere efforts to excise it? White Christianity has been many things for America, but whatever else it has been, and the country is indebted to it for good many things, it has also been the primary institution for legitimizing and propagating white power and dominance. Is such a system built and maintained not just to save souls, but also to secure white supremacy, is it flawed beyond redemption? This is the question that the author asks. If we're even going to begin to answer these questions, we need to take a deeper dive into the inner logic of white Christian theology. Mm, 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 mm. Well, well, well. Next week, the Lord says the same. (laughs) And Facebook doesn't flag me for the truth. (laughs) We'll be talking about believing. The theology of white supremacy. Yes, they have a theology. And their theology generally puts black people at the way, way bottom. And people of color a little bit above that. So we're going to talk about that on next week. Um, It is 628. So I am going to open it up. If you would like to um, comment If you would like to share on any experience you've had in white Christian spaces, um, feel free to type I'm in. And while I'm waiting, uh, I can, I have several experiences (laughs) of being in white Christian spaces and, and not under some understanding some things and looking back on that time, realizing, hmm, that's what they were about. This is what they were doing. This is why they didn't accept certain things. I get it now. Um, but I'm going to let somebody else talk tonight. So we'll start with Lady Sonia Green. I'll see if I can add you in. And uh, Pastor Ben, I see you there as well. Lady Barbara, I don't see a camera for you yet. Sonia says adding, so hopefully it'll let you pop in. Let's see. Good evening, oh, Apostle. I'm looking like a booger. Huh? Like a booger. <laughs> what? Thank you, uh, Prophet Watkins. Appreciate you. Okay. So, um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Y'all see my pajamas? Forgive me. 
me just turn it back around here. Y'all can see my hair is messed up. But um, I thought that was pretty interesting. I had, um, when you read that, I said, wow, that's pretty deep because I thought about how the church looks like a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. And then those same principles came in. So that explains a lot why we see what we see that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's pretty deep. But also, I attended a dominantly white church for about 10 years. You attended what? It wasn't a predom- a predom- I'm sorry, I'm in this kitchen cooking. A predominantly white church. Okay. Uh, for about 10 years. It wasn't, but it became um, a kingdom church. But before I went there, uh, it was it held probably about three, two to 2,000 seats when I got, when I arrived there. It was only probably about five families, and I was one of three black families that were there. Wow. And, uh, and so from there, what I did see, oh, oh, there's something else. So what happened after seeing that, the church began to grow. Mm-hmm. And so it grew with a lot. It, people, African-Americans slowly came in, but it still became predominantly white. But what I had started noticing with my wonderful discernment is that some may still write, I know y'all eat dinner with me. I know y'all doing all this, but y'all have a spirit of something. I didn't know what it was. And then I asked one of the... Um, one of my um, friends there, and she said that it was a spirit of patriotism. Mm. And this was even, this was like during the Bush era. And so I was like, wow. So when Obama ran, they got violently upset with some of my friends who wore Obama shirts. Mm. And so, yeah, it's consistently seen. And I, I thought about something too, when you said, uh, when you were talking about that and I'm always trying to figure out what kind of solution can we have except but the truth mm-hmm. and recognizing it. But however, you know, how can we how can we bring folks to the table who don't think that they are operating in this or this is part of what they're doing? And I was like, yeah, I wish we had a, like a, a create a church diversity and inclusion um, panel team or something. Or yeah, account, or accountability accountability uh, committee. Yes. Almost like and, and here's and here's an idea, you know, just an idea. Um, why are we waiting on the world to create a truth and reconciliation commission? I know. I, I said that today. I'm telling you, you said that I was sitting here thinking. Why Why are we waiting on the world to create a truth and reconciliation commission? when we are supposed to be keepers of the truth, speakers of the truth, walking in the truth, living in the truth. And when we know that the church legitimized the other sectors of society with racist policies, it would seem to me like we would want to start with us. Absolutely. I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm with you totally. Chick on, oh, Lord, this woman on Facebook now, and she, what she does, she throws these uh, conspiracy theories about Trump. You know, so basically, we notice that Trump's statements are pretty racist, right? Mm-hmm. And then, then when somebody checked her on, she said, "Well, I didn't say that." So when you got black folk, now the difference between African American and black folk. <laughs> so when you got black folk who consistently 
believe the propaganda and they won't believe the truth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They'd rather believe the, the, Jesus, the Kenny Loggins Jesus mm-hmm. instead of believing the Jesus with the afro and the barbecue dinners and the gang <laughs> in that Bible. They won't do that. And they will send, for instance, like a Clarence Thomas. You got a, a, a man, Johnson. You know, you got all these other people out here that when you say come together mm-hmm. and let's have this conversation within our own community. Because me personally, I always tell them, leave a church. I tell them that, I, somebody say, you shouldn't say that. No, I'm going to say it. Leave the church. There's a lot of black churches, storefront churches. You get, you know, everything you need because they don't took everything that we had anyway. <laughs> so you can get it there and go ahead and duplicate them. But again, we have to, again, change the mindsets and the mind thought the mindsets and the thought processes of those people i think that came in i think you said one time you did a teaching all of this moved in they start shifting us when they came in with hill song and bluegrass, mm-hmm. whatever all that stuff is and you know all these people begin to sing you know soaking music and all of a sudden we begin to move to that white culture and now they're assimilating and this is what i said that i said two strongest things that people that we had was the church and music you know what i mean we, well we, it we, if you think if you think about it i don't even necessarily think it's it's a genre issue i think it's the content of our songs um okay. think of it this way if i move you from songs that remind you that justice and mercy has still not been done. And I move and I shift your ideology to Jesus is wonderful. Yes, he is. Jesus is lovely. Yes, he is. Jesus is beautiful. Yes, he is. But if I get you to sing that over all the atrocity that's happening, then what I've done is I've gotten you to ignore what's actually happening in real time to you and to the people that you're connected to. Yes, that's exactly it. And so the the way to get you, again, think about what they did. Think about what happened with hip hop. The way to get you away from conscious hip hop, right, was to get you to keep the beat, keep the beat, change the message keep the beat but move you away from consciously singing about we have to overcome we got to fight the power now we talking about twerking in our bathrooms and creating silhouettes again I've shifted you and I've shifted your consciousness from things that need to be addressed in your culture to singing over it with generalities yes so a part of the power of the music that came out of the black experience was because the key word it came out of the black experience yes it came out of what we were going through it came out of a consciousness that these things are not the way they are supposed to be so if i get you to take your focus off of that that things are not right. And I don't ever address the fact that they're not right. I don't ever offer how we can fix it, but I keep telling you that this over here is what you should be singing. 
this over here is the better way because that's really what it yeah. what it has become their way is better because yes. and again we have made and I won't say we I'll say we in general not specifically but we have almost made it a shameful thing to sing what it was that our ancestors were singing about people yes. will often say oh I don't want to hear I don't want to hear about the pain and the trials and all you know just sing sing the lovely stuff but why are you asking me to sing the lovely stuff when there's atrocities happening to people who look like me and so what happens is our worship music becomes a form of escapism from addressing what needs to be addressed and so when people say I can't listen to Hillsong right now I can't listen to Bethel right now I can't listen to some of these people because their music is a form of escapism it's not that I dislike the artists it's the fact that I know that people want to sing over here and close their eyes to what's actually happening to black and brown people in the name of Jesus yes and that, and that should make people think, what are you doing? What are you really doing? You're singing over here that everything is beautiful and you're choosing to ignore what is actually happening to your black brothers and sisters in this country. Very much so like the German Christians ignored what was happening over in Germany when the Jews were being, the, uh, the Ashkenazim mainly, were being slaughtered. They kept singing over it. They sung a little louder. So what we're seeing in our culture in America, we're seeing white people sing a little louder. (laughs) You're right. And when you don't get with that program of singing a little louder or singing generalized songs, then people look at you like, oh, you know, you you got a problem. Actually, I do. Yeah, I I do. I I have a problem with how this is being done. I have a problem with the fact that you ignore what needs to happen concerning justice, but you want to sing songs about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and here goes. That's exactly. I said, it's just like you said with hip hop. Once they changed the narrative, it was over. I said, we're the only race that would hear them degrading our women, degrading our men, telling them to destroy each other. You don't hear that on country country western, you don't hear anything of those things. So this is what I've noticed, just like you said. So even like um even when I start posting facts on Facebook, I ain't talking about Jesus. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm posting stuff that's going on. Mm-hmm. I'll get two likes. But the moment I said I had a dream, the Lord gave me a dream about the church. I got 500 and so many. I'm just saying I got a lot of likes and I'm like, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's wrong with y'all? Y'all in this bubble? You don't see what's going on in your life? No. Anyway, <laughs> it's just irritating. It really is. That's why I'm not on there a lot because I, I'm, I'm like, Lord, send me some people that really want to know the truth and then what he'll do, somebody will inbox me and say, thank you. I learned so much when I hear your lies mm-hmm. and that's what makes me stay on Facebook. Yeah. Because, you know, because you want us to get it. Exactly. You know, we, we, I want y'all to get it. Y'all don't get it. Y'all don't buy the land. 
and y'all consistent. Anyway, I ain't calling you for that, but I think that's that you, what you were talking about was excellent. I love it. I'm glad I made it today <laughs> to catch you. Thank I'm you for tuning in. in. All right, God bless this. Thank you. I appreciate this conversation. I, I, and again, um, I hope that people will share this broadcast out. I know that people watch me outside of Facebook. You know, they do the, the in-picture thing. I get it. I know people don't want to be seen <laughs> watching this conversation. That's perfectly fine. As long as you share this conversation with someone who needs to hear it, i.e. your white brothers and sisters, I'm cool with that. Yes. Absolutely. Share. Share a light. Yeah. And if they have questions, tell them to take it up with Jesus to read Christ. <laughs> Not the Kenny Loggins one. <laughs> Jesus to read Christ is here for you tonight. Just call on his name. <laughs> Bless you, sir. All right. Take care. Thank you for tuning in. Bye-bye. All right, Pastor Ben, I think I have you in queue here. Let's see. Hopefully it will add to you. Good evening. Evening. How are you? I am good. I think Lady Barbara is next after you. Okay. I agree. Where do you want to start? <laughs> That's the question. Where do I want to start? Uh, because here's the thing. I, I know we got I know we got people on this line that are gonna teach the truth regardless of where and who likes it mm-hmm. or, or not. Yeah, but we do that. And because we do that, we get a lot of people that's uh indoctrinized into the white supremacist gospel. Mm-hmm. Of, 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 of all colors. Yep. That they just don't, it's like they just don't want to come out because, as we keep saying, white ice is not cold, they, have, they don't know that yet. Correct. Mm-hmm. How here's the thing I don't think there's a black person or a brown person on this planet that don't know that white folks have lied to us mm-hmm. and the things that they've done to us. So, why is it that you're so willing? to believe anything that comes out of their mouth and you won't even check it out. It's, it's said and you believe it. Seriously brainwashing. True. Yeah. And and you yeah. have to you have to actually take an active role in going through a process of deprogramming. Mm-hmm. And this society because of the way it is built it actually comforts you in your brainwashing right it does not make deprogramming a comfortable route to go it is more comfortable to say in this country it is more comfortable to just go along to get along to not rock the boat to silently disagree and suffer in silence but i think we've seen i think we've seen enough people say i'm done with suffering in silence Uh right and so you have organizations like pew research who will do all of these 
surveys about what's happening with the church and people are leaving the church and blah, blah, blah. People are fed up. And so oftentimes their research will calculate that as people left God. That's not what happened. (laughs) People are oftentimes leaving white supremacy. And then when they when they actually develop their relationship with God, they start actually being able to separate that what I was in was not even God at all. It was tethers of white supremacy that was cloaking its that was cloaking itself as God or as even church. Because there are certain things that people do under the auspices of church that have nothing to do with scripture but it does have a lot to do with upholding white supremacy within that institution. Yes. Case in point, you can be a part of this organization, but, and I'll just give you one from the black side that is very, what I call internalized hatred. But if you're going to be a part of this organization, you can't come up in here with no Afro. You can't come up in here with no head wrap. Because people will look at you like you're crazy. Or they will think if you come in your in their sanctuary, they will automatically, and I've had this happen to me, they will automatically assume you're Muslim. Now I'm looking at them like, okay, I just praised the same. I just praised Jesus over here. <laughs> you see me praising Jesus, you see me reading the same scriptures you're reading, why are you assuming because of my attire that I'm Muslim? Because they're brainwashed. Exactly. What in your mind has associated any attire that doesn't look Eurocentric as Muslim? I know I'm stepping on somebody's toes tonight. I know I am. But when you when you do things like that and you say, oh, if you're going to be a part of this ministry, you can't have an afro. You'll have, your hair has to be laid and slayed. That's inappropriate dress for you to have an afro in your head. <laughs> oh, and don't have dreadlocks. Don't have dreadlocks. Don't have dreadlocks. Let's go to scripture and look at the the uh, description of Christ. <laughs> I guess they never did that, or they were convinced that uh, white white rain meant missed it means that Christ was white. <laughs> okay, and uh, and hair like wool. I guess they took that as saying, well, it wasn't really like wool. It was just long and curled at the bottom a little bit. Uh, because we all know that wool is curly. Mm-hmm. And it's tight curl. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when it gets to a certain length, it starts what? Locking up dreadlocks? Some of us know that. Okay. Some of us know that. But I, I wanna I, I wanna go to uh, what you were saying earlier about you know about how you have to be sober and silence and all that stuff you have to be quiet and 
not speak out against me. But excuse me. If I'm not mistaken, Christ was our example. Mm-hmm. And wasn't he the only example that we're supposed to follow? Mm-hmm. Now, did he suffer in silence? Did he just stand by and watch things happen? Or did he address the issue? I'm gonna see. If, I'm gonna see if I can uh, blow this picture up. This was Ebony, 2018-2019 top ten HBCU queens. Um, what do you notice? Everybody's hair is straight, straight except for one. Bingo. I just want to show, I just wanted to put the one example. I got more, but I want to put the one example there because in our efforts to elevate ourselves, we are still holding to certain standards that were thrust upon us. And that's one of those standards. Historically, you can look it up. You don't have to believe me. One of those standards were if we did certain things to our the, the hair that comes out of our head, right? We would be more accepted into society. It would be a quote unquote sign of our civilization. So, so there are things, all I'm saying is there are things that we are living with that is a legacy tie into what was thought about us that still carries over into our psyche today. And we think it's our idea, but it's actually historically an idea that was thrust upon us that we have now engrafted into the Uh way that we behave. Uh Now, I want to say this. Okay, because those were savages on the 6th of January that went up in the Capitol building. Those were savages. Let's make, let's, let's just say it like it is. They were savages, terrorists. They were white, their hair was straight. So, I don't know, maybe we see things, <laughs> well, we see things the way they really are, let me put it that way. Okay. Here's another image. HBCU Queens chosen to represent. This one is from 2012. I just want us to know this has been going on a while. That's all. Okay. What do you see? Straight hair. Okay. So is straight hair wrong? No. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying... Why are we doing certain things? That's what I want people to examine. Why are you doing what you're doing? What is the driver behind what you're doing? Are you doing it for yourself? Or are you doing it because you think it's going to put you closer in proximity to whiteness, which in our society means whiteness equals social acceptance. 
Whiteness equals social capital. Whiteness equals economic capital. This is why we had to have something called, that's going on state by state now, the Crown Act. That you have the right to do something as simple as wear your natural hair coming out of your head. What I'm saying tonight is we're talking about Thinking Thursday and Theology Thursday is some of these same things that we see in the culture, we also see in religious institutions. Closing thought, Pastor Ben, I want to make sure I give Lady Barbara some time. Now, I'm going to end on this because you were talking about hair. And for so long, our hair has been found upon, no matter how we do it. For centuries, black girls were braids. It was found upon. When that little skinny white girl, Bo Derek, wore braids in, in the movie Ken, all of a sudden, wow! All of a sudden, wow, listen, we need to be us. We need to pursue what you said. That, that brought everything home, actually, because the question is why. That's the bottom line. Ask that question. Why? Why is the black or black crime as high as it is? Why? It's not just happening. It didn't just come out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Why? Why are they not pushing the white on white crime, which is basically about the same at the same percentage? Why? Why do they have you looking at Chicago like it's the worst city in this country? In the last I looked, there were about 40-something other cities that was worse than Detroit. See, let's ask why. See, why? That will cut out a lot of stuff. That's why. And then do the research. Why? Oh, why? So I'm, I'm done. Thank you, Pastor Ben. I appreciate you chiming in and sharing your insight with me tonight. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Lady Barbara, I am adding you now. Good evening, Good Lady evening. Barbara. Good evening. As I was listening to, as you showed the different women from the HBCUs, and it just came to me because I look, black excellence does not mean equality for us. Mm. Because it means that you have to work even harder. It's, it's more of a standard is required of you, regardless of how much excellence you obtain when you walk in those type of when you plan on going into certain arenas where you think that you have to have this image and you're going to be accepted and I was thinking about when we read about the bourgeoisie and how they went through mental issues and anxiety because regardless to how they tried to be accepted they were not accepted Mm-hmm. And and um and I was just sitting thinking as you said that the act the actresses that passed for white name Rita Haywood was a black woman but she was able to pass for a white woman so she so that's the place that we have to look to that we don't discard our image our our, 
our culture and who we are and that we embrace our blackness and not let people take take that away because that has had been from the beginning we were taught black nappy hair because I got what I got the wool kind so and, and those are the things that I even in our own black community growing up as a child people made different distinctions about the texture of your hair but and again so, but again, all of that goes back to, um, Lady Barbara, all of that goes back to what have we internalized? What have we internalized? What message came from outside of our community, invaded our community and our thought processes that we still parrot today? Why does it have to be called nappy hair? Why can't it be called tightly coiled hair? Why can't it be called um, extremely wavy hair? Why do we have to use the negative connotation even to this day? Let me do one thing here. I want to make sure that I um, close while I still have time on my recording tonight. I want to thank those of you who have been listening to us by anchor.fm. I thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for listening to this conversation. This is an ongoing conversation. So if you would like to catch this conversation live, you can always join us on the Daring Dialogues Facebook page. Join us there, like the page, share, and subscribe. Until next time, see you tomorrow.